Land and labor, these are the desires of the British Empire and the bane of the Africans who must provide them. While the colonial project is driven through violence, it is rooted in another tool, the power of stories. Everything the British do is filtered through an elaborate narrative designed to position them as pioneers of a noble, civilizing mission. In Kenya, the Kikuyu will be the first to truly feel the sting of the British fiction and the Giriyama, the very last. But both tribes will reach for the same weapon to unify their resistance. They will reach for a traditional bond, the power of the oath. Find out how the English fairy tale fares against the Kenyan oath on this week's episode of the Kenyan Experiment. minutes past six. You are hereby informed that everybody is requested to stay at home. There should be no movement in town. The government has now been taken over by the military until further notice. Welcome to the Kenyan Experiment, a journey through Kenyan history. Welcome to episode 2 of the Kenyan Experiment, Forms of Protest Part 2, Oaths and Stories. Last time we looked at the interplay between the Nandi and the Maasai and their interactions and conflicts with the colonizers. This week we'll focus on the Giriyama and the Kikuyu. I picked these two because they exemplify a trade of resistance that over and over in a manner of different forms becomes critical and that's the issue of unity. You want to fight but how do you bring people together? How do you channel all these different grievances into a useful direction? Because throughout colonialism, people are always fighting, they're always resisting, but it's often in these scattered and sometimes isolated ways. If you want the fight to work, it becomes clear you need to bring everyone on board and make sure they feel that everyone else has their back, especially in the face of the inevitable backlash that will ensue when the British false reality is challenged. And this community has accomplished this task by turning to the use of oaths. So let's find out how they did it. In 1899, Rudyard Kipling, an English author best known for writing The Jungle Book, writes a poem. He calls it The White Man's Burden. It is a glorification of empire and colonization. The poem positions the colonial march not as exploitation and theft, but as civilization and stewardship. Kipling describes people of color as half-devil, half-child, a combination that justifies paternalism and violence. This philosophy underpins much of British interactions with African peoples. It even captures British contempt and incredulity, a rebellion, as the poem says, Take up the white man's burden and reap his old reward, the blame of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard. The white man's burden is the philosophy that the British lean on in Kenya and in other territories to justify what they want. And it's quite ridiculous 
but you have to almost admire how versatile it is as a piece of justification. It really is able to just stretch and bend to make what the British want not just permissible, but even ethical. Like that line, half devil, half child. It sets the stage to look down on an entire people's ability and their agency so you can take what they have, saying it's for their own good, but because that will require extreme violence, they can't just be seen as children. They also have to be regarded as extremely dangerous to justify what colonization will actually require. Now, to understand how the Giriyama and the Kikuyu relate to the British, it's important to understand their two primary sources of conflict, land and labor. The British need land, they need labor, and Africans are going to provide it, provided here being in the involuntary sense. To start with, the British declare all unoccupied land as crown territory, which is bad enough, but they don't actually stop there. In theory, they're supposed to avoid occupied land or, if necessary, compensate Africans for it. But because they want to take it, they don't really do this. They get around it by returning to their story to justify what they actually want to do. They say that Africans don't understand land ownership, so it's not really stealing. Having taken the land, the settlers and the government create a system of pushes and pulls designed to solve the labor problem. One of the solutions is taxes. There's a hat tax for any African household, a poll tax for, well, existing, and a series of taxes that are deployed as necessary to get the desired result. The idea is to increase financial pressure and push Kenyans into having no choice but to work for the settlers, because taxes are paid in cash, and one of the only ways to get cash is to work for the settlers. This is reinforced by a series of other measures, like they appoint colonial headmen and colonial chiefs to oversee collection of these taxes, and they punish you if you don't pay, and just strongly suggest and manipulate people into getting into wage labor. Even the land alienation plays into all of this because over and above giving Europeans property, moving Africans into reserves and restricting their access to land reduces their ability to produce and this reduces their ability to sell and find other means of paying taxes. Another avenue of this manipulation is communal labor, something we discussed a bit in the last episode. Basically, it's forced work done for free because it's allegedly to the Africans' benefit. They'll come to your area saying, we're building something here, and because it's for you, not for us really, we shouldn't have to pay you. You're the main beneficiary of this project. And this works on two levels. On one hand, the the government benefits from free services. And because they know no one wants to do it, and avoiding it is an extremely costly affair, there's a charge of 150 shillings, or they'll imprison you. To put that in perspective, even if an African goes into wage labor, they make 6 to 12 shillings a month. So this pushes people to go work for settlers because that's the only way out of it. And if you're going to break your back doing work you don't want to do anyway, better to have the option that makes money. So this whole system, in case you're wondering why the British are doing all this, is designed to give their appearance that Africans are willingly volunteering to work for settlers. So if you look at it from a distance and squint, it all looks above board. Because at this time, to the British, slavery is illegal, forcing people to work for private interests is illegal. So this way, it looks like no one is being forced, even if that is far from the truth. In other words, the fiction must be maintained. The British conquest is founded on narratives. Brilliant, benevolent Europeans coming to save and propel lazy, barbaric African. A story that ignores just how reliant the British will be on Kenyans. 
Until 1920, despite the settler farms having every unfair advantage, many of their agricultural pursuits will fail. The export sector will be supported by African farms. Three quarters of the goods shipped on the Uganda Railway will come from the African sector. And for people claiming they are taking up a burden, for a long time, direct taxation on Africans will make up 85% of government revenue. But facts and numbers will do little to shake the contempt in the British story, as the English author Elspeth Huxley wrote. The idea that the interest of an assortment of barbaric, idealist, and untutored tribesmen, clothed in sheep's fat, castor oil, or rancid butter, men who smell out witches, drunk blood warm from the throats of living cattle, and believed that rainfall depended on the arrangements of a goat's intestines, should be exalted above those of the educated European, would have seemed to them fantastic. Kikuyu and Giriyama reactions to British incursions take a while to solidify for a number of reasons. For the Kikuyu, initially, they don't understand just how intrusive the British are going to be. In fact, in some areas, they are extremely welcoming. Some even help settlers put up their houses. In the beginning, there are no fences, so there's really no sense of just how much land they intend to take. And because they initially need laborers, the British are quite amenable to Kenyans living on what they consider to now be their land. So the Kikuyu have been turned into a class of tenant laborers and they don't even know it. It's not until 1912 when coffee planting and other cash crops are on the rise and the settlers need great tracts of the land and they want to kick the Kikuyu out. This is when the full extent of what's been done and the true scope of the theft starts to become clear. The Kikuyu will try to get justice in all manner of ways for over 40 years, at which point that accumulated frustration and rage will explode in the violent Mau Mau uprising. You can see how core land and labor are to those frustrations when you consider that the Mau Mau's official name was the Kenya Land and Freedom Army. Still in 1912, just as the Kikuyu are realizing the true nature of their predicament, the Giriyama problems with the British truly begin. For the most part, the Giriyama have been left alone at the coast. Um, taxes have existed, but the British were too preoccupied with taking over the interior, and they didn't follow it up. They don't have any structures. So the Giriyama consider those taxes to be a minor nuisance, and they don't pay them. But now that the interior is secure, the British want to bring the Giriyama into the wage laborer market and exert even greater control over them. A task they think will be easy. And well, <laughs> they aim for a little bit of a surprise on that count. Uh, living at the coast, have witnessed the slave trade, and as such, they're opposed to any kind of external labor system, especially one that requires them to work far from home. The women in particular are extremely against their sons moving. They remember their sons going off and disappearing, lost to slavery. So they're not willing to risk anything that even looks like it. So when it becomes clear that the British are going to insist, a form of resistance begins almost immediately. In order to rationalize the measures that will be used to force Africans to work, framing is important. The exploitation must be positioned as good and any resistance to it as unethical. As the governor of Kenya, Henry Belfield, would say of the Giriyama, they refuse to come out of their country and do a hand's turn for anybody. When the British start to lean on the Giriyama, they learn that they are an incredibly stubborn people and fiercely protective of their culture. You can see hints of this even from before. 
while missionaries have been successfully recruiting people from other tribes into Christianity, there's barely any Giriyama Christians. And even before that, their long contact with the Arabs led to very few conversions to Islam. All efforts to change were just resisted. So when the tax regime finally gets serious, the Giriyama go to great lengths not to pay. They present receipts from relatives and claim them as their own. They hide from tax collectors. And when that doesn't work, they beat them up. Sometimes they'll even just up and move locations. And it's not even that they can't pay, because when push comes to shove and they have to, they can afford it. They grow grains and are running a brisk bit of business, especially in selling maize. They're just very formidable traders. And most times, the Giriyama economy is booming. But even in the cases where it's not, like let's say in case of a drought, where they can't get the funds quickly, they prefer to borrow from Arab moneylenders before becoming wage laborers for the British. And if they have to go into labor, they choose to work on Afro-Arab plantations where, while the wages are lower, the conditions are preferable because they can leave whenever they please, as opposed to the longer contracts the Europeans are demanding. The British do not like any of this at all. They portray the Griyama as lazy, drunk, and unenterprising, completely averse to work. They ignore the fact that their primary problem, the reason they can't get them into the wage labor market, is because the economy is doing so well or the implications that the Griyama will literally take less money for similar work to avoid working for them. It just doesn't fit their narrative. In the face of all this, the British step up their measures to get the Giriyama in line, and the provincial commissioner, Charles Hobley, sends in a man called Arthur Champion to fix the situation. Champion has a terrible time with the Giriyama because they immediately don't like him. When he tries to conduct a census to estimate taxes, they hide when the enumerators come. The more he tries to push them to turn up for labor recruitment, the more hostile they get. Soon, his men start finding Giriyama making new arrows, indicating that things might get ugly. At some point, the Giriyama even try to poison his interpreter so he can't function. The Giriyama are not playing around, they really want him gone. It's a level of intransigence the British were not expecting. And so eventually the provincial commissioner decides he's going to visit the Guriyama personally and send a message. His presence is meant to give way to an upcoming tax collection that's been cleverly planned to happen before the harvest and thus force the Guriyama into labor. So Commissioner Hobley decides to lay down the law. He tells the Guriyama that their native councils will now act under the British government that they are tenants at will of the government in their northern lands in Transabaki, and that any further disobedience will result in a military patrol coming to teach them a lesson. This alarms the Giriyama as it was intended to, but it doesn't have the expected effect. Up until then, the Giriyama have been assuming that the increased British interference is a temporary thing, that if they frustrate them enough, they'll leave them alone again. The commissioner's visit sends the message home that this is a bit of a longer term problem. And so the Giriyama decide to change their response accordingly. For the Kikuyu, the issues can be broken into two pieces. The first is the initial alienation right at the beginning where they're moved into reserves. The second unfolds over a longer time period. See, when the British were expanding west into the Rift Valley, they sent for Kikuyu laborers to clear land and help them out. Kikuyus who'd had their land alienated viewed this as an opportunity to get new land. So thousands of Kikuyu go west and help the British set up in these new lands. But it's all based on a miscommunication, or maybe I should say on a lie. The British see them as tenant laborers. 
the Kikuyu believe that they have rights in this new land because they cleared it and they were the pioneers of the establishment there. According to Kikuyu custom, they can't be kicked out summarily and they have rights in this land. In their minds, it's not a bad deal. They get land to live on and till and graze and have to offer some labor, but only like half the year, which they're paid for. But to the British, they're just hired hands. Eventually, as the British expand their cash crops, they want the Kikuyu to now leave the land. They've served their purpose. This presents a bit of a problem. There's a lot of them now. By the 1940s, one in every eight Kikuyus is a squatter on European land. This eviction will essentially create a very large landless class and probably trigger a rebellion. The British try to mitigate this and slow it down by giving some new lands, but these new lands come with new contracts. Contracts that limit how much cultivation the Kikuyu can do and restrict them from keeping any cattle. The effects of this are devastating. It's an economic death blow. The annual income among the Kikuyu squatters will drop to less than a quarter of what it was before. And if this isn't enough, these new lands are mostly temporary. More and more, the Kikuyu are forcibly being repatriated back into the already crowded reserve where they either had nothing to begin with or abandoned it for better prospects west or to Nairobi. Neither is a good option. And for those who still have them, the British won't allow them to move with their cattle, their store of wealth. They either have to leave them with the British or they're forced to sell them at throwaway prices. Now, in this way, the British have managed to avoid an outright rebellion by spreading it out, but the anger born from this doesn't just disappear. This new landless class and their bitterness at this treatment is in many ways the story of the birth of the Mau Mau. So we see it. The Giriyama and the Kikuyu are both in a place where they feel backed up against the wall. The need for resistance is clear to them, but they lack unity and coordination. This is the hole that oaths will come to fill. Perhaps the most concerning human trait is the ability to reframe and accept cruelty as benevolence. Positioning British colonization as a moral good is done in many mediums, novels, poems, and the most innovative medium for fiction there is, the proclamations of politicians. In his speech, The True Conception of Empire, the British statesman Joseph Chamberlain says, we feel now that our rule over these territories can only be justified if we can show that it adds to the happiness and prosperity of the people. And I maintain that our rule does and has brought security and peace and comparative prosperity to countries that never knew these blessings before. Now, this matter of land is causing an issue that cuts entirely across Kikuyu society. Even the most loyal chief among the Kikuyu, that's the paramount chief, Koinange agitates so much for it that a land commission is formed to look into the matter. At one point during the hearings, they challenge the chief. They say, prove that this land was yours. And in this dramatic gesture, he guides the commissioners onto what he says is his land and he points somewhere and says, this was my grandfather's grave. He has it dug up and the bones exhumed in front of them. The commissioners are completely stunned. But even with that, eventually, the commission leads only to disappointment. What land is given to the Kikuyu is of a much lesser quality than what was taken and it accounts for just a tiny fraction of the amount stolen. It's such an obvious brush off that even the chief Koinange turns his back on the British. Ironically, 
Koinange, a former hardcore loyalist, and his family will have a lot to do with how all things comes into play among the Kikuyu, though much of it won't be intentional and he will eventually come to regret it. What happens is, after the failed land commission, Koinange slowly moves into the ranks of the Kenya African Union. Now the KAU comes to substitute something that was called the Kikuyu Central Association formed in the 1920s. It was formed to present Kikuyu grievances to the colonial government, primarily on the matter of land. This is significant because the first oaths among squatters, precursors to the Mau Mau Oath, are based on the membership oath of this organization. Koinange and his family and a group of activists are now encouraging political oaths designed to get the Kikuyu to stand in solidarity. Koinange will later be joined by Jomo Kenyatta in the KAU, and the faction they form is a moderate one. The age skews older, and their take is they're not happy with the British, but they just want reform, not revolution. In some ways, their oath is more like an entry fee to a club and offered very selectively. You have to pay to get it, and you have to be a certain kind of person to get it. But there's a younger faction in the KAU, urban youth and evicted squatters streaming into the city, who see it differently. Their version of this oath is slowly turning into something more militant in their hands. And though Koinange and Kenyatta don't know it, this group, led by men like Fred Kubai and Bildad Kagea, is slowly taking over the KAU. While Kenyatta and Koinange are more boardroom types, the young militants have slowly been going to the streets and building a base for themselves. They've been forming links with trade unionists, squatters in central Kenya, and the growing Nairobi criminal underworld. And with time, they start to create an order to how they administer this new oath. It's given to key trade unionists, and they spread their agenda among their members. It's given to taxi drivers, and that way they're able to create a transport network. They give it to trusted criminals with specific instructions to steal and store weapons for the expected conflict. They also steal to raise funds for the movement. And beyond that, this oath is also secretly being administered in the reserves. In contrast, Giriyama oaths are an entrenched part of society and they don't alter their nature in the face of colonialism. They're simply focused on the problem at hand. There are two primary oaths that are used in this. There is the Mukushakushe oath taken by women and the Fisi oath taken by men. These oaths are commonly known and already feared because they operate kind of like a magic spell. The very threat of an oath is sometimes enough to cause people to change what they're doing and act accordingly. What the Mukushakushe oath does is it curses someone and everyone in that person's family. And the Fisi oath is even known to the British and they consider it the most powerful oath among the Guriyama because of the respect and outright fear that people show for it. The oath is used to define unacceptable behavior and when it's done, it's believed that it contaminates the entire water supply. If you break the terms of the oath and drink water, you will die. So after the commissioner's speech, the Giriyama start to hold meetings at Kaya Fungo, their primary Kaya, to determine what to do about the British. Kayas are like sacred places with ritual and political significance, and the Giriyama will gather there in times of great importance to the community. It's at these meetings that the diviner Mekatilili comes to the fore. You get the feeling that she must be an incredibly charismatic person because of what she actually accomplishes here. 
this is a woman in an extremely patriarchal society and she has no truly influential standing. Yet she manages to sway the elders, the medicine men and the community at large in a particular direction. She makes the case that the British are trying to erode their culture and their way of life and that something needs to be done. It's under her urging that Othing begins to take place, rallying the Giriyama to fight the British and not offer them assistance. She becomes the catalyst for the rebellion that will follow and the frightening oaths that will be sworn. The cause of the Mau Mau rebellion required an explanation and one that did not lay blame at the feet of the British. Alan Lennox Boyd, the British Secretary of State for the colonies, was happy to provide one. Mau Mau is a conspiracy based on the total perversion of the human spirit by means of the power of the oath and by witchcraft and intimidation, all of which combined to place its followers mentally almost in another world in which the pursuit of their twisted aims was the only important thing. Secretary Boyd would never clarify on why the return of land and freedom were twisted aims. One of the final versions of the Mau Mau Oath takes this form. It is often done in groups with an emphasis on rituals involving the number seven, goats and blood. Seven candidates stand facing Mount Kenya bound loosely by the intestines of a goat. Their middle fingers are pricked and the blood is spread on the body of an uncastrated goat. A piece of goat meat is bitten off and swallowed between each vow. They lick the blood from each other's middle fingers, becoming blood brothers. They walk through arcs made of maize, sugarcane and banana stalks seven times. Each time, the oath administrator cuts the intestines on them and they cry out, May this oath kill who lies. If I fail, may this oath kill me. This oath is a complex thing and the steps can be expanded or reduced based on necessity. So, as this oath spreads and grows through the countryside, the British begin to hear of it, partly because taking this oath isn't exactly voluntary. The recruiters are intent for every Kikuyu to take it and some people don't like that. And the oath is sometimes being administered by very young men, some barely 18, which gives pause to some of the more traditional and respectable Kikuyu. In their eyes, traditionally, these kids have no business administering oaths to their elders. So some people report it, which gives the British knowledge that it's happening, but little else because the informants are not actually willing to make open accusations. The oaths are, one way or another, still managing to create a veil of secrecy that very few were willing to fully commit to breaking. The British tasked colonial headmen and chiefs to investigate the matter, but they just end up fearing for their lives because their homes are being attacked and burned whenever they try to cooperate in uncovering this oathing conspiracy. After the Giriyama Oaths, when Champion comes back, he finds a completely different situation from what he left. Even loyal headmen will no longer appear. They're just too afraid. No one will serve as so much as even a porter for the British. One of the most loyal headmen, Mkoa Wagobwe, writes to Champion, quote, Sir, think about this matter seriously. I, Mkoa, in my heart, very much fear for the government. End quote. A nephew of a headman, who had previously requested to replace his uncle, when he's finally given the appointment, refuses saying, I shall be killed by it. The headmen are caught in a strange place 
The British will blame them if the Giriyama do not toe the line, but if they push, even if there was no magic, they will almost certainly be killed. Champion will write this about the situation. Quote, Every Giriyama is much more afraid of the Kiharo, the oath, than of the government. End quote. And so the British make a decision. The goal is no longer to get laborers, is to regain control and remind the Giriyama of their place. It is possible that part of the British obstinacy in what they believed stemmed from the fact that their propaganda started young. The younger a person is when you convince them that a story is true, the more conviction they will have in the story, the harder they will defend it. As the British writer and adventurer Frank Bullen said in 1902, every British boy is a confirmed imperialist. Now, the British want to humble the Giriyama. Seeing as the last attempt failed, they come up with a new list of demands for them. They ask them to pay an exorbitant fine. They ask them to revoke the old oaths and swear new ones, which are to be pro-government. And they really want to rub it in, so they demand that the Giriyama relocate from their northern lands in Transabakia, which the British want because their own cash crop attempts at the coast are going poorly while the Giriyama have been doing incredibly well. They also demand that the Giriyama move Kayafungo to a more central location. The Kaya is not just the Giriyama headquarters. It's a sacred shrine with special significance to all Giriyama. So these last two demands truly horrify the Giriyama. And so this retaliation begins. First, Mekatilili is arrested and detained on the other side of the country in Kisi. Two, the Giriyama renounce their oaths and swear new ones. But this is a little bit of a scam from the Giriyama. The British allies among them know that it's not a feasible request and that the people required to properly constitute a proper oathing ceremony will never come. So they pretend to hold the ceremony and quite cheekily, they ask the British officials if they want to witness the ceremony, they have to pay to join the secret oathing society, making a little money out of the whole affair. In terms of the other two demands, moving the Kaya and moving from their lands, the Griyama don't protest, which makes the British think that they've agreed, but they are not actually making any moves to comply with either demand. Whenever the British ask, everyone will blame someone else for the delays, and basically they bluff as long as they can. The Giriyama understand that this matter will likely lead to conflict, so they've been buying time by faking submission as they make weapons and prepare for the coming battle. On realizing they've been played, the British decide to send an even more aggressive message. They summon the leadership to Kayafungo and they make them watch as a dynamite team blows it up. The elders are quiet as their Kaya is burned to the ground before them. The British think they finally hammered the message home, but once again, they fail to realize that Giriyama's silence is not compliance. After all, the oaths are still in place. Back to the Kikuyu, Mau Mau attacks on loyalists are starting to pick up pace, and the British, caught flat-footed, turn to a blunt legal instrument, the Collective Punishments Ordinance. They enact collective punishment for communities that refuse to cooperate with the investigations. This is counterproductive because even people who didn't agree with the Mau Mau are now being punished and are more likely to listen to them. But for a more effective measure, under the guidance of Louis Leakey, they start a counter-oath 
Loyal elders and chiefs conduct a new oath designed to remove the effects of the Mau Mau oath. The thing with symbolic ceremonies is if you have the right combination of symbols and forms and authority, they can be effective. So some things about the Mau Mau oath are working against it. The fact that it was involuntary for some people and they didn't want to take it. The fact that it was delivered by youths as opposed to the senior elders that the British are using. That gives the British oath some legitimacy. On top of that, the British oath uses the Gidadi, a stone culturally believed to be extremely powerful and that increases its acceptance among some Kikuyu as valid. But the Maumau, not to be outmaneuvered, threaten the elders carrying out these oaths and they back it up with killings. And it's not just elders, headmen, police informants, witnesses against Maumau and other loyalists who refuse to take the oath start to turn up dead and mutilated all over central Kenya. Louis Leakey has to go into hiding. The Maumau Oath may not have a reputation for killing those who break its proscripts, like the Giriyama one, but the Maumau are more than happy to do it themselves. After blowing up Kayafungo, there's a seething rage among the Giriyama, and with the British insisting that they must give up their lands, it's only a matter of time before things come to a head. And then two things happen that create confidence in the power of the oaths. First, World War I breaks out, and the British battle with the Germans spills into East Africa. The Giriyama learn of this and how critical it is to the British, and to them it's almost like a lucky omen. The second one is that Mekatilili, who should be imprisoned in Kisi, has turned up again. And I keep trying to imagine what it must look like to the British. You're in the middle of a crisis, always complicating everything, and then you turn around and see the rabble rouser who started this entire ruckus walking around, stirring shit up. And something that usually gets lost in the Mekatelili story is her age. This woman is in her 70s. An old woman has escaped from a British prison and walked from Kisi to the coast, arriving at the worst possible time. Personally, I think I would actually start worrying that she really does have powers. Regardless, the ingredients for an uprising are lining themselves up just perfectly. The Mau Mau are getting bolder. They assassinate senior chief Warohio. At this point, the most important ally the British have in Central Province. It's an embarrassing development. It creates the impression that if the British can't even protect their most reliable friends in the region, then perhaps the Mau Mau are the ones who should be feared. The British react in a somewhat knee-jerk fashion. They lump all activists, militant or moderate, into the same group and Koinange and Kenyatta find themselves in trouble and detained because of a movement they have very little to do with. A fact that must have been particularly galling to Kenyatta himself because not only was he not involved with the Mau Mau, when he tried to stop their co-option of the KAU, they threatened to kill him. While some of the true leadership is caught, most of the real militants have long heard of their arrests and taken to the forest. These measures will not be enough to forestall the gathering storm. The rights of an indigenous population of a nation and their claim to that nation had to be disputed to justify the colonial march. In 1937, Winston Churchill would say, I do not admit that the dog in the manger has the final right to the manger. Even though he may have lain there for a long time, I do not admit that right. Perhaps of thematic relevance, 
Churchill was speaking before the Palestinian Royal Commission regarding British plans for the establishment of the Jewish National Home in Palestine. The situation among the Guriyama is very volatile, but it's actually the British who provide the final spark that boils things over. It starts with a miscommunication among the British. Arthur Champion receives a telegram that seems to imply he has to recruit a thousand men among the Guriyama in just 10 days to aid the military effort against the Germans. This is an extremely unreasonable demand when you consider that they've never succeeded in recruiting the Guriyama for anything in any significant numbers. But Champion tries to obey. He sends his men across the area to recruit 50 men from each region. The Guriyama response to this is predictable. They're angry and they reject the call in no uncertain terms. What gets everything spiraling out of control is one of the men Champion sends on this mission encounters a village with only women and children. The men had already heard of his coming and so they went into hiding. This policeman proceeds to rape a woman. The Guriyama men hear and reveal themselves and fire upon him, but he manages to escape. When Champion comes to investigate, the policemen simply say that they've been fired upon, but leave out the details of how it started. Champion responds as if the attack was unprovoked, and the Guriyama already in a rage from the labor demands. This last act, it's too much. They start to rebel. In a fairly short period of time, the British feel overwhelmed. They're getting back-to-back reports from everywhere of increased hostile Guriyama activity. They even start to fear that they're going to be kicked out of Guriyama territory. Some of this is caused by further miscommunication and exaggeration. Because the Guriyama are out to make a point, the British are not in any true danger. But because of the speed of events and the nature of communication by telegram, they don't know that for quite some time. But what really scares the British is that this escalation has come at the wrong time. The Guriyama are simply too close to the German war front. They can be used to aid the Germans, and in a way, they already are. German agents have already approached them and spoken to them, contacts they built through the ivory trade previously. The Germans have promised their support if they fight for their independence. One of them, a Somali agent named Haji, is even claiming the Germans have given him a charm that will protect the Guriyama from British bullets. While they don't entirely believe them, it gives the Guriyama some added confidence. If they go to war, they have a potential ally. So for the British, this must end quickly and decisively before they are facing a combined problem of a war and an internal uprising. The Guriyama have ignored every last one of the messages they've been sending them. And so the next one must be in blood. The Mau Mau opposition truly kicks off in what will be one of the bloodiest affairs of the whole war. It will come to be known as the Larry Massacre. To understand what happened, you have to understand the build-up. Larry in Kiambu is an interesting place because it's in some ways a scale model of all the problems and angles of the Kiku situation. It started as a settlement born from British deception. The residents of Larry had originally settled in Tigoni. Here they had been promised that there would be no further alienations. This would turn out to be a lie. To show just how lowly the British considered African concerns, they wanted to evict the Tigoni Kikuyu to build a social club. Now, this turned out to be more difficult than they had expected. The outcry was so great that it became clear that there would need to be some kind of compensation 
and so they offered them Larry. Initially, the Tigoni Kikuyu rejected this offer, and in fact, most of them never accepted it at any point. Typical of the British, they handled it carelessly. They only recognized the claims of some of the Kikuyu, ignoring important customs, and the land was just simply not of the same quality or even quantity. Unfortunately for the Tigoni Kikuyu, they were betrayed by none other than their spokesperson, Chief Luca. Luca and some of his followers agreed to go to Larry, which left the rest divided and in a somewhat untenable position. When the eviction orders came, they had no leg to stand on because the agreement was already signed. Worse still, even for those who went willingly with Chief Luca, the land allocations were anything but fair. Luca did very well for himself in this move. This man made out like a bandit, a likely reason he was for the idea in the first place. The bitterness from this unfairness by the British and the betrayal by Chief Luca was part and parcel of Larry's foundation. Over and above that, the ignored customs the British triggered in Tigoni also created a problem in Larry. The land was not allocated in a traditional manner, but instead with commercial interests at heart. So many inhabitants were left landless, but they stayed as laborers. Many of the landless squatters from Rift Valley also ended up in Larry, looking for work as it was near where they had been evicted. So when the Mau Mau started to come to prominence, all these issues meant that they had strong support in Larry and the secret oaths would eventually spread like wildfire there. All this is to give context. Larry was the result of British lies and land crimes. It was brimming with both Mau Mau and colonial sympathizers, a dangerous cocktail that would lead to a massacre. One night, a home guard unit on patrol is summoned to investigate a murder some kilometers from Larry. They find one of their headmen nailed to a tree and mutilated. While the home guard are trying to figure this out, they see fires in the distance and realize that this killing was intended to lure them away from Larry, to leave it undefended. They run back wildly, but in the hour it takes them to return, it's already done. They come back to a grotesque scene. Hearts have been tied shut and set ablaze with the inhabitants still inside. Anyone escaping or not inside has been hacked to death. There are nearly 200 dead. Women and children have not been spared. The British will portray this as an indiscriminate attack playing up the savagery and perversion of the Mau Mau. But the truth is, the targets were very carefully chosen. The dead are ex-chief Luca and his family, chiefs and their families, headmen and their families, prominent home guards and their families. Lesser home guards were left alone. Those perceived to just be workers were left alone. The neighbors were left alone. A message was being sent, and while the British missed the subtext, the Kikuyu did not. Ex-Chief Luca and his allies had conspired with the British, betrayed their people for their own benefit, and stolen their land. The killing of their wives and children along with them was a denial of inheritance. Luca and the other elites had betrayed their dependents, so theirs would not be allowed to benefit from it. What the British did understand was that they had underestimated the scale of the problem. This would not be settled easily. 
They call it Pax Britannica, the British peace, a period of tranquility and stability in the world brought about by the empire. It is perhaps the most egregious lie in the British fiction. War, protest and insurgency were the norm and peace the exception. To deal with the Giriyama, the British call in for military support. The King's African Rifles sweep through the northern Transabaki lands in a march of destruction. They start to burn villages to the ground and advance in a rain of bullets. The Giriyama made this assault with resistance at every step of the way. The mission to evacuate the north was originally meant to last six days, but with the fight the Giriyama are putting up, it becomes increasingly clear that this will not be possible. So the King's African Rifles fall back and the Giriyama, encouraged by this, start to advance. They attack British stations one after the other before taking on the headman's villages. They kill a headman who refuses to cooperate. They rely on the power of their oaths for a unified assault. What they don't know is that the King's African Rifles have not really retreated. They've requested for backup, two full companies of troops and a month's worth of supplies. The war is about to escalate to new heights. The assault has barely begun. On the Kikuyu front, Mau Mau in the city are becoming a menace. There are daily robberies in Eastlands of government institutions and people perceived to be pro-government. Assassinations of loyalists, policemen and informers continue almost every day. The British are getting increasingly frustrated by the lack of information because whatever the special branch manages to get, it's not from Kikuyu's. The oaths are doing their job and the oathing is picking up the Mau Mau are having ceremonies with up to 800 people. Between this and the Larry massacre, the British decide to do something unprecedented. They call it Operation Anvil. On 24th April 1954, Nairobi residents will wake up to find that the entire city has been barricaded. No one can get in or out. The entire city is ringed with police and soldiers. By the time the King's African Rifles return, the whole of Giriyama land is in upheaval. Large numbers are gathering at the remains of Kayafungo. In the face of such open rebellion, the British troops are taking no prisoners. They shoot at any Giriyama they see, hostile or not. They burn buildings in their path and they carry whatever livestock they find. Now, it's important to note that the last time the Giriyama faced gunfire in a war setting was decades before against the Arabs. This, this is different. They've never seen repeater rifles before and they're realizing how relentless they are. And the Giriyama at this point are fighting with bows and arrows. Whatever they had expected, it wasn't this. They've been deaths throughout this entire conflict, but now the Giriyama are witnessing deaths on a scale they've never seen before. Some Giriyama, utterly broken and demoralized, take off to hide out as the conflict continues. Those who remain resort to guerrilla warfare, determined to continue the resistance. But something has become clear to the Giriyama. This is a battle they cannot win. The scale of Operation Anvil 
is hard to imagine and as much as I try, I don't think I can truly wrap my head around it. Nairobi is locked down for an entire month. An African can only leave one of the African estates in the back of a caged lorry. They are herded into barbed wire compounds for grilling and identification. Basically, almost every black person in the city has been herded into these camps and screened. Non-Kikuyus, once identified, are allowed to leave. Kikuyus are required to present just a multitude of documents. There's an ID, an employment registration card, a card showing their history of employment, a poll tax receipt, and a Kikuyu special tax receipt. Not having even one of these documents is grounds for increased suspicion. It's just a wild situation. The entire thing is so dystopian. Just imagine you've been herded into this concentration camp style prison in the city. You sit it there, huddled with thousands of people, and then you see men with sacks over their heads, hovering about and weaving through the crowds. You later come to learn that they're wearing these sacks to hide their identity because they're other Kikuyu men. They've betrayed you and are acting as witnesses for the British to identify Mao Mao from the crowds. It's surreal. And by the time it's done, Operation Anvil will have resulted in over 50,000 screenings and over 20,000 will be detained. The women who are either related or married to the detained men are to be repatriated to the reserve. When these women are being loaded onto buses to go to the reserve, European and Asian women form a league to serve them tea and bread. This charity is utterly rejected. The bread is thrown in their faces and they are met with loud songs of protest and insults. The Kikuyu women see it for the empty gesture that it is. And though the British have pretended otherwise, the defiance has never been gendered. The European and Asian women have until this point been silent in the face of this injustice. They've watched as lives were blown up. The Kikuyu women let them know that they cannot show up at the end and by the silence of their conscience with tea and bread. The Giriyama will lose the battle and sue for peace afterwards, but their spirited campaign was not futile. It'll have some results. Namely, the British never really get what they want. They want to turn the Giriyama into wage laborers, and the Giriyama will reluctantly agree to give 1,000 men to act as porters for six months as a condition of punishment for the rebellion. But that'll be the end of it, because even after the war, some Giriyama will openly state that they would genuinely rather die than work for the British for a few months. The British eventually conclude that it's a lost mission. Quote, Government should be realistic. If this is the Giriyama attitude, then attempts to get labor are self-defeating. Since August, things have been upset. The Giriyama have lived in the bush like animals, lost huts, stock, and friends. Still, they refuse to work. End quote. The British don't end up getting the Transabaki lands either. First, a land commission discovers that the provincial commissioner's conclusions that the British had claims to those lands were wildly inaccurate. And perhaps more pertinent, British interference in those very lands has contributed to the worst food shortage at the coast since the beginning of the century. So, while the British did manage to sabotage what had been a bustling economy and cause a lot of pain to the Giriyama, they still don't get what they wanted. And so the Giriyama Oaths and their unified resistance has borne dividends. In the end, 
the Giriyama make a mark on the British psyche and even manage to crack the English narrative. Provincial Commissioner Hobley will eventually conclude of the Giriyama that, quote, their psychology is perhaps the most complex of all the tribes. They knew the power of government, but always seemed to think that by the adoption of a persistent attitude of non-possumous, they could wear us down so that we should become tired, thus relaxing our efforts. Their reasoning was more or less sound. Operation Anvil accomplished its goal in scattering the nerve center of Maumau activities, but the struggle will go on for longer and with more branches than we can cover in a single episode. But regarding oaths, I think we've covered their effect in a way that lets you see what was accomplished. It was a confidence of purpose and a conviction that could be sustained even in adverse circumstances. Like, the British tried to destroy Kikuyu businesses in a bid to stop them aiding and hiding information. They'd review licenses of Kikuyu-owned businesses, refused to renew them, but it didn't work. They banned taxis from carrying more than one Kikuyu passenger, and a measure Kenyan listeners may find familiar. Taxi owners were ordered to paint a yellow band on their vehicles for ease of identification. It didn't work. And even after Operation Anvil, the fighting spirit that existed required a constant escalation of measures from the British. I think the height of these measures would be the project of villagization, moving of the Kikuyu into regulated villages, or should we say concentration camps. While Operation Anvil saw the screening of more than 50,000 Kikuyu, villagization saw the relocation of more than a million and 70,000 Kikuyu in a period of just over a year. The British went to truly great lengths because the Mau Mau just wouldn't give up. And one of the things that truly horrified the British about the Mau Mau rebellion is how it challenged their narrative. They had managed to convince themselves that the Kenyans they oppressed were their friends and were happy with the situation. But the oaths gave such a unity of purpose and incentive to act that previously seeming docile Kikuyu would sign up. So when the settlers would see their long-time servants acting against them, people they would later say they saw as part of their family, they couldn't reconcile that, and so they had to adjust their story. The new claim was that the Maumau rebellion was a mental illness. The Kikuyu had moved too quickly into progress, and as such, their minds had recoiled and shied away from it, like moving into a room with too much light, too quickly, they had retreated back into the darkness. As a piece of justification, it's not some of the best British work, but they needed to come up with something because as we've seen, it was important to them that they be the good guys, that they have done nothing wrong, that all this be within justified bounds. I think the power of the oath came from the fact that it gave purpose and direction to something that was already there. You can see the extent of confidence and surety the oath gave the Mau Mau from the arrest of a man known as General Number no. 6. He was one of the Mau Mau chief activists in the city. When the general is arrested, he's extremely bold in court, unafraid and positively overconfident for a man in his position. When he's sentenced to hang, he declares that he's not afraid to die for his land, and he simply vows that his people will avenge him. And it's true, because they've already done it. The informant who gave him up is already dead. When the leader of the Mau Mau, Dedan Kimathi, is captured, the night before he's hanged, he writes, quote, I am so busy and happy preparing for heaven tomorrow. End quote. They took the words of their oaths to heart. If I fail to support this organization until the day of independence, 
may I die. I must sacrifice my blood and the blood of the Kikuyu for freedom. And that's it for the second part of the Forms of Protest series. This was a lot more difficult to make than I expected, but I hope you enjoyed it regardless. Tune in next time for the third and final part of this series, Forms of Protest, Part 3, The Serpent God of Lake Victoria. <laughs>